Where are you right now? I am upstairs in the old attic. The old Val's and Von Balthazar room. Yep, with its blue walls and clouds that have like a yellow tinge on top. Why do the clouds have a, have, have a tinge on top? Why? I don't know, I tell you. I don't know. Because they're clouds over the city of Pittsburgh. Thank you, steel industry. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for everything that you gave us except for Steeler fans. Listen, any Midwest football, any any um, football team's fan base is horrible. Like, let's be clear here. Uh, let's be very, very uh, clear. They're all horrible. Like, when you get to like, the diehard ones who are like, oh, my gosh. Like, they're just terrible human beings. Um, but it does take on the reflection of the city just <laughs> a bit. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I think you see the worst of the city in each of the fan bases. So, like, the diehard the diehard Bengal fans are like, you're kind of Ohio. I have nothing to live for. Um, I, like, just very... Um, uh, I don't even know how to describe it without sounding really, really mean. So I'm not going to. Um, let's just say that they're not the, they're not the smartest... Nor are they uh, the most reasonable group of people. Oh, good! You still did it. <laughs> Let's. Just, I, I don't want to get offensive, but let me just simply say they are all dummy, dumb, dumb McDummersons. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Which is how people like me feel about dummy, dumb, 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 dumbs. People like me feel about all sports fans. Now, Star Wars fans, that, dude, Luke, you saying that last week, I've probably told 20 people. I'm like, Luke said, I care about Apple the way most people care about sports, and it's 100% true. At least it was. It's, it is. You, it's dimmed lately, but yeah, you're absolutely right. You were talking about their, their like uh, cash flow value or something, <laughs> and I was like, who cares about this kind of stuff? And I thought, I mean, like, I find it interesting, so I, I totally understand. I was being somewhat hyperbolic. But then it just, and then I was like, oh, he treats us just like I do sports teams. <laughs> uh, it turns out being a fan addict works for all sorts of things, and not just sports ball. Yeah, yeah. Being a fan is a really weird thing. True, true. When do you think it crosses the line into idolatry or absurdity? When it when it loses its place in um, the hierarchy of your life, and, and I don't know if there's like a real definitive point where that happens. I think it's when you have a re. I mean, because you can have okay. So I've had strong reactions to to sports, what? strong strong reactions. Um, I have cried. I have. Um, Hit things, but like pillows, you know, like so. I mean, like, I, I, I want to be clear. I, like, I, it, this was not a violent thing. This was just a. Oh, I'm so sad and angry. I'm going to punch this pillow. I think I. I think when the Bengals lost to the Steelers in 2015, yeah, that did it for you. That did it. That's the end. I grabbed the pillow on our couch and just started hitting the couch with the <laughs> pillow. <laughs> like, but it was like an angry you thing. Naughty little <laughs> couch. I hate you. I get it. I get it, Luke. We've all been there. When Apple yeah. did not release ARM-based Macs for the 2020 MacBook Pro, I did the same thing. I took a pillow and I just bit it. 
I'm just going to bite my pillow. <laughs> and I just let it know who's boss. You're like, darn you, Tim Cook. Darn you in your nice, fashionable <laughs> sense. You're a southerner, but I don't care anymore because you gave me what I wanted. Yeah. You're very apple because you're, you're a southerner and you're also gay. <laughs> Tim Cook. Designed in California, but manufactured in China. He's a robot. Yeah. He's really a robot. <laughs> yeah, no, I, Apple Apple is so, like, I'm so, I'm, like, disgusted with them, like, on an emotional level and not on a, like, I can't take the price of RAM. The price of RAM in Apple has always been absurdly high. And now that I actually do stuff that has... A higher RAM demand. You need RAM. Yeah. The yeah. fact that, like, yeah. I have a, a a computer that has the word Pro in it, and it comes standard with eight gigabytes. And it's like nothing with the word Pro should come standard with eight gigabytes. Like it's just, it's just insane. So that's my little, that's my little thing. They are kind of hitting the point of where it's like, do it, and you like it, you little dirty boy. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know? Or it's like, like, like they kind of know. Um. But no, but but to get to your point of where like when it crosses over, I, I think like truly when you um, and this is easy to do with so many things, um, it's when you, you get so into it that you lose touch with reality, right? So I, I don't think like my reaction to the Bengals and Steelers loss, though it sounds absurd on here in context in the moment, and it wasn't like a violent thing. It was just I was just you know. I, w- I want to be very clear here. <laughs> when was the last time you cried? Uh, over when the sports? U.S. men's team didn't did not uh, make the World Cup, I got choked up telling Aaron over the phone. <laughs> Aaron, I have some bad news. Oh my gosh, are you okay? Did you get in a car accident? Worse, it's worse. The U.S. men's national soccer team did not make the World Cup. No, okay, it wasn't that dramatic. But I started. I ca- I called her and I said they didn't qualify, and she goes, "What?" And I go. They didn't qualify <laughs> like that. <laughs> I go well, and they. I go the, the the men's you and I could I could I could feel the tears coming. Into, this is the alcohol. Okay, I'll be very clear here. This is when alcohol like when steers alcohol attacks. And I and I just was like they didn't. The U.S. men's team didn't make the World Cup, and she just goes, "Are you crying?" <laughs> I love her so much. And as I was on the phone, a dude who was at the bar, who was who was a U.S. A men's team fan, he walks past me. He sees me. He puts his arm on my shoulder, and he gives me, like, a really comforting tap. Like, I get it. You know? Like, he's on my shoulder a, uh, like, a, a, a couple of times. And I go, um, thanks, man. And he walks off and just goes, fuck! Like that really loud. <laughs> Golly. People were devastated. I mean, because you, 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 you have to understand, like, you have to understand how big of a deal this is. If the U.S. were to play in the, in, in the next World Cup, more than eight years will have passed since the last time they played in a World Cup. Wow. Eight years. Your, your daughter, your, your oldest daughter will be 12 when the U.S. men's national team plays again in the, in the World Cup. Thank God. Then she can enjoy it. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> it's true. It's true, yeah. Am no, I right? I'm finally. Luke, you answer me. You answer. Oh, wait, you did. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I love, I love the idea of your feelings being hurt 
until my daughter is 12. Like, it just makes me feel good inside, knowing that you're <laughs> suffering. <laughs> but, like, I don't... Okay, I, okay do, so do I think it's bad to have, like, an, uh, oh, my gosh, this really sucks reaction to that? No. Did I walk around in the rain asking God if I had made an idol of this and feeling like perhaps I had a bit? Yes. <laughs> I think both of those things can be can be you true. You can hold to both at the when same time. All the pod <laughs> when when you listen to so many podcasts, so many other things about this stuff at the because you know like what's the opportunity cost, right? And when the opportunity cost is okay, so, so this is when I think it becomes an idol. When the opportunity when the opportunity cost is greater than um, like what the actual thing is, yeah. And that's hard to measure and quantify. And I don't think that you can, because I mean, you, you could always um, come up w w with an excuse of other things that you can that you can be doing. But there are just some nice, fun things about sports and being a fan of things where it's like, no, this does this is a good like it's good to waste time on stupid stuff unlike that. I think, yeah, or the podcast, whatever. Well, no, okay, so I'm um, like, here's a really, here's a really, um, here's a uh here's a great example of this so ohio, um ohio state football which is a very big deal in my family is not going to be happening this this fall uh we were devastated i will show you a picture of of the text thread it's pretty hilarious now the majority of people in the world would go that doesn't matter that's dumb but i would go well actually it's it's a really fun thing that i get to do with my family every year is care about this this thing that's a reflection of um where we're from and the sport that we like and my sister went to college there there's all this stuff that you know is packed it's very much an ohio thing to like to like ohio state and when you and, and um, when you don't have that of course it's not the most important thing wait 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 in the world. Wait, hmm. Ohio State? What is that? The Ohio State. Oh, sorry. Oh, I apologize. The oh, okay. Ohio State. I was way off. Okay. So when you are robbed of being able to watch the Ohio State uh, University dominate as they do, especially they do. That, that garbage of a team up north, they are so terrible. Um, when, you're, when that is taken away from you, I think that is an actual loss because it's a community it's a thing you do with your family your friends it is um a communal event that is that is good but it's not earth ending it's not a life shattering you know or, or anything like that yeah isn't that funny that it can be it's a thing that you participate in that can bring you great joy and and when you lose you have a burst of disappointment or whatever but it's not like a true devastation. You know what I mean? No. Like, yeah. You know, and, and that's and what's that's, fun about it. It's a disappointment, but it's not like, it's not like the death of a loved one. You know, that is interesting. It's, it's as long as you're rational, as long as you're rational, you don't burn down your damn city because they either won or lost the championship. game. Yeah. Like that's so dumb. Like that's to me, that's, a, I, I think there's, um, I've never understood that's, that. That's always going to happen. Just be like, listen, we don't, people love to riot. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. Americans yep. were all about um, rioting for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, we haven't seen it as much in the, in, the, in, the, in the past hundred years. But there's this weird thing where it's, it's just an example of our fallen nature, I think. Why, this happens everywhere, everywhere. It doesn't matter where, you've, where you're from. Perhaps uh, maybe the Japanese are the one people who don't riot um, when their team wins. But it happens in Europe. It happens in um, at just all different parts of the world, and um, it 
I think there because there is a good thing about people going out in, into the streets. Like watch watch tapes of when tapes. Holy crap, Luke! Watch videos <laughs> of when the Cubs won the World Series a couple a couple of years ago, and tell me you don't you feel the emotion that's going on there. Yeah, how long because was it just so, since they won the World Series? The curse that they had a hundred since they had won. I want to say like a hundred and four years. Like I, I believe over one hundred years. A century of failure. <laughs> yeah, like when the Bengals win a, win a win a playoff game, I'm getting in my car, driving down to, to Cincinnati, and I don't I don't even care if I see anyone that I know or that I don't know. I am going out into the streets and I am going to celebrate. And I'm not going to riot. I'm just going to go and park at the archdiocese because they don't care who parks there. <laughs> they say they do, but they don't care. Uh, and um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please don't let me. Um, um, please don't let me lose my privilege. I'll, I'll, so the so the bottom line is I like partying. Is, is is yeah I, i've never understood that like yay my team won let's burn a car but i do understand it as a as a an american pastime as old as baseball itself the uh i mean th- there's been tons of riots in the last 100 years just not riots that affect us i mean the student riots of the 1960s and the mm-hmm. Tulsa race riot that led to the massacre and all that stuff. Like those are, <laughs> those are riots. We love a good riot. We love a good, uh, I mean, you know, shopping y- experience. You could argue that this country was built upon rioting. I mean, if you well, look I mean, at the, the Boston like, Tea Party, the and- American Revolution. Yeah, yeah. Tar and feathering was a very violent thing when that when that happened. It was not a little like, oh, good who? sir, now now you have feathers on you. <laughs> it was who the we're hell gonna burn your came skin. up with that? Who the hell came up? Right, we got tar. We're going to heat it up. We're going to pour it on your f- naked flesh, and then we're going to throw feathers on you. <laughs> like, who the, <laughs> the hell? The birds will probably, <laughs> at best, kill you, and at worst, scar you for life. Yeah, and drive you insane. You won't get this tar off. You will probably die in a couple of weeks. But here's some feathers to boot. Look at you, oh chicken man. Look at you. USA. USA. I love it when the Simpsons did a thing where where like what was it? Homer's dad comes walking and he's got a tar feathers on him. He's like, Yeah, it happened again. I got tar and feathered. And he goes in and sits down. I can't remember the context. Oh, what was me? Oh, sports oh, Everything ball. is dark and light. Yeah, I know. It yeah, is. But, uh, it is. Th- there's this thing in our nature where we want, like, this is, why, again, why I like sports and the things. Like, it's, there's something very interesting about when you're able to experience pain that actually doesn't have a big cost to you but still yeah. hurts. Yeah. Like, it, it's it's interesting, right? Because there are times when it just, this is why I think reading books is good, too, because it just, you know, like you're saying, you can experience, like, pain but it doesn't really matter but the problem is is that we i i think where it also becomes a problem is when you have nothing to live for it's very easy for it to become your identity yeah and it's such a shallow way to belong you know going back to that whole community experience thing like belonging to people in a public manner where it's like me and eighty thousand of my closest friends kind of thing if that's the only way that you belong, meaning that forms your identity, like you were saying. That's where it becomes, I think, I think that's where it steps from fan to fanatic. Um, that's where it goes into the irrational zone because it's what you're deriving your sense of worth. And your sense of worth isn't even located uh, within yourself or what you accomplish. It's located in what other people that you like to watch accomplish. 
Um, that's sad. That's rough. That's a rough way to live. So if that's you people, uh, we need to reprioritize and let Jesus be your savior. Huh? 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 <laughs> now, let's talk about the real topic of today, Luke, the brown scapula. So <laughs> when enrolling in the brown in the confraternity of the brown scapula, what you're going to want to do is go to confession. You're going to want to find a priest who knows what he's talking about. You're going to want to pray it up. With these three easy steps, you too will not die. Good luck finding them. Uh, okay, so we were going to talk about that thing. Did you watch The Matrix? So I did not watch The Matrix, but I listened <laughs> to, I just, I'm, I apologize to you dearly, but uh, I could not find time in my schedule to do it. But I did listen to the episode of Catholic Stuff You Should Know, Addicted to Mediocrity. Good episode, huh? That was a great episode. Yeah, yeah, it was very, it's almost the thing where I'm like, oh man, perhaps we should just tell people to go and listen to it, because I don't know like what else, but th- th- sorry, keep going, I feel like you have more thoughts. No, I, I, I mean, I'm glad you recommended it. I'm not an avid listener of Catholic stuff. You should know. I love the band. Keep the banter going. Everyone who hates it is a dumb idiot. No, I know. I know. But it is funny getting an insight into the, the, what I love about their banter is you get an insight into the lives of priests who love being priests. You know, like they're, they're, yes. they're yep. dudes. Number one, I've met them. They are dudes, right? They're dudes. And they ardently love their people and doing the ministry of the sacraments and and whatever, whatever. And they have formed around them an excellent community of young adults in the Denver Archdiocese. Like when I hear, like he, he they're constantly referencing lay people that they are having dinner with, doing ministry with, hanging out with, going to a game with, you know, grilling with, you know, whatever it might be. They're constantly referencing that in their banter, and I. Love it. And their friend groups, even though they might be at different parishes, overlap a lot. And that is yeah, awesome. We to know see. everyone that they're yeah. <laughs> I know like everyone that, that they that they I'm talking about it. I mean not so much anymore just because it's weird how fast those like groups can can actually change. Yeah. Like everyone that I was I'm friends with out in um out in Denver, they're all pretty much gone. Well, and it also is funny because you have young adult groups, which a lot of that, you know, a lot of their ministry centers around. And it's like, oh, you got married. See you later. Up, oh, you had a kid. See you later. Right. Like once their the individual's live situation changes, oftentimes their participation in young adult ministry disappears. We had a lot of married couples who, who are childless. And the moment they have a kid, it's like they disappear. A hundred percent. They stop answering emails. They're like, forget you guys. I got a baby at home. So, uh, yeah. Do no, young adult yeah, ministry you is hard. Like you- you do feel like you don't have a life. Oh, by the way, speaking of lives, guess what I'm going to tonight? And then we'll get back to the topic at hand. I do want Are to bring Are you this up. going to see Dave Chappelle live? Suck it! Dude. Wow. Yes, I am. Do you want to know who he had over the weekend there? Over the weekend? Who? Okay, here's here's so here's here's how this works. So everyone who doesn't know on the Dave Chappelle, apparently Gen Z kids don't really know who he is. Shame on you. Dave Chappelle's one of the best comedians in like in the world. He's from DC but decided to buy a house in Yellow Springs, Ohio, right outside of Dayton. My hunch is because they love weed there. And um and uh so during the he's been known to do these pop up shows there every now and again at his barn on, on his farm. Out there, and he started doing it during the pand- um, a couple. I, I think in June he started doing these pop up shows where you had to be socially distanced. He was approved by the governor to um, to um, 
to have it. And what he does is, so the comedian, Michelle Wolf, she is living with him and his family. So she's, she tends to be at all of these things, but these pop-up shows, there's only, a, there's only like 400 tickets and it's, it's out in this park and you are um, six feet apart from, from everyone there. And you don't know who's going to be performing there. It's all, you know, is you will see Dave Chappelle and they're very hard to get up tickets, and I was and I was able to buy some. And last weekend, he had Dave Chappelle, Sarah Silverman, Michelle Wolf, John Mayer. <laughs> wow! And a couple weeks ago, he had David Letterman there. Oh wow! Chris Rock showed up, and they Facetimed Jim Carrey during the show. Oh, he actually had Louis C.K. add one with him and Sarah Silverman. Um. Is Louis C.K. back? He is. I would not say he's trying. I would say he's just doing his thing. It doesn't see. I mean, I don't think he's trying to get back into the national spotlight. I don't get that impression because he's not. But I don't know. He might. I mean, he's he's definitely he's doing he's doing stand up again. He had a show that he released on 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 online. I mean, he's definitely doing stuff again. Did that movie come out that he did with uh, what's her name, Chloe? Whatever. I don't think so. The Daddy one that something? got canned right as it right yeah. as that came out. Yeah, I don't. I Daddy? don't. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think it's ever going to be released. To be honest with you, I mean, I'm sure it'll pop its way on, on, online um, somehow. Yeah. So, anyways, basically tonight I'll be seeing Dave um, uh, Dave Chappelle, and it's a very small. I mean, it's a. It, it feels intimate because you're in a park and there's just and they really aren't a lot of people and the way and the way they have the seats, you're all just like like you feel pretty close uh, still. I guess John Stewart was there on Monday night, so I don't know if he'll be there again or not. You just do you just don't know who's who are his friends. But yes, I'm going to see Dave Chappelle tonight. That's awesome, man. It's our that first is date awesome, night Luke. Since since Everly was born, so nice. You need to call me tomorrow morning. And we need to do a quick recap and insert it right here into the episode. Deal. 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 Nice. Deal. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is it preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, I started going to therapy probably about maybe four months ago, maybe three months ago. And I just kind of realized that healing is something that the Lord wants us to receive. But healing is always an invitation from God. Quite often he asks people to, to you know, take a step out. We have to take action. And a great way to do that is through a group called BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and I'm going to send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and I'm a thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule a weekly video or phone obsession so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Those are weird as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so that they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel like you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is indeed available. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today. You can go to betterhelp.com slash reviews and read some of the testimonials that are posted daily.
So this is what we're going to do. We have a special offer for podcast listeners. You get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com slash Foxes. You go to slash Foxes and you will get 10% off your first month. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional counselor. BetterHelp.com slash Foxes. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. That is so awesome. I'm not going to lie. Like, I am getting back into comedy in a big way. I shouldn't say in a big way. I'm getting back into my appreciation for it. And it's mostly because of comedians in cars getting coffee. Because I started reading all these articles about Jerry Seinfeld and his, like, appreciation for the comedic form and the comedian's Mm -hmm. mentality. And I know I've talked about this on the show before, but uh, and I got into coffee. Um, the <laughs> watching of that show, you get to see such a wide range of personalities, and not every episode is even like halfway decent in terms of like I'm laughing. But you get the last one I watched was a Super Dave Osborne, and I am just dying the whole time because it gives you an insight. Like it really is a snapshot into their personality. And then I've been doing a bunch of like uh, Bill Burr clips with Shannon because she never she doesn't like him because he's too foul. But we'll I'll show some clips about specific things and she's like crying, laughing so hard. So it's been it's been fun like trying to get back into it. But I have still never been to a comedy uh, like a live stand up. It's it's wonder there there is nothing like it, especially when it goes well. When it goes yeah. bad, it, it, it can be I can like. The uh, here is the best. There are two. So I, I haven't been to a ton of stand up shows. I have been to a few, um, not as much as I would like. But one of the best places to go in the country is at the Comedy Works out in Denver, downtown. It's this really small. It's like in a basement. It feels like you're in a basement. It fits about three hundred people. It's very very intimate, and that's actually important. I think for yeah. um, for good comedy. And um, this guy came out, and he made this joke, and I, I couldn't get anyone out in Denver. So I was going, I was going to see Mark Maron, the guy who opened. Was, his name was um, Brandon Walsh. And uh, he had this joke in the very beginning that was so funny. And I don't know if it was scripted or if it was just off the top of his head, which is what I always love. And um, just seeing the look, like half of the f- – I mean, it was re- it was just hilarious in and, like, in and of itself, but half of what was funny was also having to see Maggie Smith's reaction to it Yeah, because she's so pure and innocent. Uh, she was the only person who w- would agree to go with me because I didn't want to go alone. And um, just seeing her f- – I mean, she thought it was funny. I could see she was like, oh, my gosh, why would someone say this in public? <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny. Oh, I love it. Was it so funny. You delight. And you yeah. delight in shocking other people, <laughs> or being around when shockingness is oh, happening. Yeah, like, you would always do that in college when a Family Guy episode, like we would watch a Family Guy DVD, and you would put your fist in your mouth and bite it and go, then <laughs> <laughs> try to stifle your laughter. I and I knew that it was delighting you even more, knowing that Maggie was sitting next to you on the couch watching Family Guy. And just jaw to the floor, shocked that someone would laugh. I know, at that. like I remember, <laughs> just like, just, yeah, yeah. It is. There's just something now. Like, obviously, I don't like people's innocence being like being ruined or hearing things that like are right. truly like scandalous. Horrific. I want to be clear, but right up to that point, <laughs> which is why I don't like I Michelle think- Wolf. 
I like I can't stand like eighty percent of her stuff because I'm like this is too far. It's too much. Sarah Silverman could push that line for me too. Um, yeah, I I, I don't know. Like with with a lot of that stuff, there is a um. You know, I don't. I, I, this is this could be because I'm a hor- I'm a horrible person. So there's that. So I'm willing to concede that 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 point. It doesn't bother me as as much just because I think with a lot of the uh, um. There's an um. There's there's like the, okay. So there are times when you just have like jokes, right? And they're and they are ju- and they are just jokes. Um, like a lot of your old comedians, it's just like 300 one-liners in a show. Bam, 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 bam. Um, that doesn't really exist anymore, which I think is kind of sad. It's, it's, it's actually a really cool art form. It really is. I love it. Yeah. You're just a little like, um, um, one-liners like those, like, uh, those are, of course, like, uh, that's, you know, people like Don Rickles. And then you had like Woody Allen is one of the people who first, I want to say he's one of the first people who, Changed that, and there's this really interesting. Uh, there's a really interesting story I heard of, of guys that when he first saw when he first saw like Woody Allen, no one got it. This was back in the '60s, like early '60s, I think. Uh, people didn't get it, and he like he quote unquote bombed. And then you saw him one month later, and he was doing the exact same thing, and like he killed. Yeah. And huh. he said what had changed um, wasn't him, but the culture. Huh. So the the culture was actually in tune with like with what with um what he was doing, yeah, yeah. And I I always think that like that's interesting as well. But so, anyways, I think with someone like Michelle Wolf, who I've only seen um, little um, little bits and pieces here and there of her of her stuff. I haven't seen anything else. I didn't watch her um, the thing when she was speaking at the the uh reporter's dinner or you know like any of that stuff there's but she does remind me of the type of the kind of comedian where there's a truth behind the joke that that she is like she's trying to get some point across or trying to understand some like something there and 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 i i there are like i do i do have my lines we actually stopped a um mark maron special and i love maron he's one of my favorites but we stopped it because he crossed the line i was like "I, i can't watch that that's that is too far um i hate it when that happens like i'm willing to go with you and making the jokes and doing the thing and then you just hit that line you're like gosh i feel and you know part of comedy is about testing those lines and which is one of the reasons why woke comedians are terrible they were funny at first when they were self-deprecating and now it's just like oh i don't i don't find this funny i'm trying to but because careful comedy is very difficult to do well Right. And comedy is meant to explore the boundaries. And that's what I love about it. That's what I love about Jerry Seinfeld interviewing all those people, because some people see it as their duty to push the envelope of what is socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not Jerry Seinfeld's comedy, although his show, you know, talked about some, you know, you know, was racy at times or whatever. But because it was done in a format for an American evening sitcom, you know, kind of Dolores. Right. Like all that stuff. Like. It got downplayed a lot, but th- yeah, you know, like different people have different different jokes. Like Bill Bar- Burr, his whole thing is exploring the relationships between men and women, right? Like, and he hammers that home. No idea how difficult it was to be a white woman in the United States of America. <laughs> Evidently, it's it's really difficult. <laughs> Always 
bitching. Do you have any idea what it's like to be me? Well, I imagine it would be slightly less awesome than my life. <laughs> what happened to you today, sweetheart? Huh? Did they not chill your rosé? You know? Was the trolley not running down at the mall? What happened? He is very conscious of how, like, he, you can make fun of the line. You know what I mean? The white women of my generation, we have completely abandoned white men. We blame everything on you. Even though you pay our rent, we blame everything on you. We're like, they did it. It was them. We couldn't, our arms. We're the exact opposite of ride or die. We are ride and flee immediately. We're all rose from the Titanic. We grabbed a door and we shoved a white man into the sea. Like, I'm literally freezing. <laughs> I should say, I do like to do all my historical women as millennials. Like, it's just more fun to do history that way. Like, all the women on the Titanic would have been like, it's so annoying, the boat sunk. <laughs> like, how do you not see an iceberg? <laughs> that, that had to be the main discussion on all of the lifeboats, right? It was just a bunch of women being like, so you just didn't see it? <laughs> Isn't that like literally his whole job? <laughs> this is the most random ocean. <laughs> Like, Daniel Tosh d did that in one of his, you know, his most famous Ugh. comedy special. He would do that. Like, one that we loved. That was wonderful. Yeah. But that was yeah. his whole point was, you even when you know there's a line and you're not going to cross it, you can make fun of, the, of our, like, unease, and it makes it awesome. Right? And well, I think it's, it's when it's pushing for some sort of... Um, I, I would I would honestly say they're pushing for some sort of truth. Like they're trying to find a thing to grasp on of like is this real or like what is reality? Okay, that that was a big part of this whole thing of um of the addicted to mediocrity podcast was it's about dwelling in reality and that's where happiness actually is. And I think that when you have really really good comedy, it's when they're trying to grasp towards reality in a way that is funny that you kind of you know on that you really unexpect and the really good ones it's it almost it almost reminds me of brave new world is when you start to see them come to um things that we know to be true or the or the, like the things that the ch that the um uh church teaches and they're getting to that point and they're saying like and, and you can see them trying to wrestle um with that, so the, the like this is why this was such like a travesty for uh, uh, for for uh, for me and 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 I had and I had heard um, rumors about him in the past, but I pushed them out of my mind. I'm like, I'm sure you know you don't know if it, you don't know if it's uh, true or not. But the whole um, a whole um, Louis C.K. thing, he was the best at that. He had this. He had like um this way of going of trying to find and come to these really deep things that are like, that, like i mean i would say almost um, uh, it's almost he was getting to the truth of um the theology of the body through comedy and reason 
I mean, he would like dance with it. He would like get kind of oh, at times, at times, at times. I mean, it was a very distorted way of trying to go and do that. I want to be very clear here. But when he would hit it, when he would get almost close, it was fascinating. It was so fascinating. I think that John Mulaney is the same way when he has that on the line about um, he goes, I'm Catholic. And there and there are like um, and there are many issues um, with the church that I can speak of at length. But when people like Bill Maher, like all these, he, he, he basically like starts crapping on atheist. And he says, when they like, I'm going to say things like who would even, uh, who would even like believe in like a God, he would go, my mommy, that's who. So shut the f- up. Or, like there's a like, yeah, I, I like that part. I like the way he said that, that was funny. Yeah. yeah. Like how he, I love seeing how he wrestles with his Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Like I love it, and I, I and like I love how. To me, he's a person that I think every bishop should like watch when he when when he talks about because I'm like this is how the majority of millennial Catholics feel, and like that's that's what I like about it. I used to say that about Bo Burnham. I would say that if you want to get if you want to get the Y Gen or Z or you know I Gen whatever the hell they call. If you want to get the people that are in their 20s and teens, like the Bo Burnham, because he was a YouTuber who became successful yeah, and all yep. that stuff. Yeah, he was young, very young. Yeah, so my wife's brother, who's much younger than me, said, you should watch it. It's like a snapshot of how I think and feel. And I watched it, and I was like, you know, appalled at some of the stuff that he would say. But also, and he has a Daniel Tosh sort of vibe where he deliberately plays with the the sque- squeaminess, squish, squishiness, squeamishness, yeah. yep. squeamish, yep. that's the right word, of the audience. Yeah. And yeah. there was one part yeah. where, and I think we talked about this, like, early episodes, where he did this thing about, and he does, like, skits as well as, like, stand-up, and he, and he weaves them all together in this kind of incredible format. But he had this thing where he was a guy who was home alone, he sets his laptop up, he goes on a porn site, and this is like him all pantomiming this, and then of course he leads into masturbation, and he vigorously, and everyone's laughing and laughing, and then he finishes, and then he just stares at himself, and then he gets depressed. And then he goes to, like, wipe his hands off, which is disgusting, people. I'm sorry. But then he, like, looks up to the ceiling, and he goes, and he just keeps saying, like, I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry. And I was like, holy crap, that's, like, half our audience base. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, no, and, and, that's, and that's, yeah, that's when I love it because it's when you can get to those things in a really funny way. You know, and I don't, like, again, we can talk about is it right to be, like, are those jokes even um, right? And that's yeah, a morally, valid um, yeah. conversation. But there, there is this thing about. Um, there is an insight. And you have a good point. Like, yeah, yeah. Hearing that voice is so like that's why I like Michelle um Wolf, even though I'm sure we would um disagree on so many things. Um she it's a voice that I find to be interesting. And I want to hear what she ha- what she really has to say. And we talk so much about wanting to hear the culture and wanting to meet the culture um, where they're at. I'm like, yeah. this is one way to do that. This I'm not is, saying this it's is where ways, they're at. But it, and we don't want to admit it. it. But it is. It, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, I mean, totally. And it's just, and there's a, um, I just, I don't know. Like I, like, I mean, if you think about who were the big comedians of the 90s, especially in your alt scene, your Mitch Hedbergs and your um, Bill, oh gosh, I can see his face. I'm drawing a blank on his name. He died. Um, I'm told, but like they were very much 
of the time. And like if um if you were to see them, oh my gosh, what was his name? He was this he was um from Texas actually. He was this huge comedian. Uh and then he died of cancer, I think. Um Bill Hicks. Yes, Bill Hicks. Thank you, Bill Hicks. What was the Gen X cultural attitude? I'd show them five minutes of Bill Hicks. I'd be like, that's it right there. That's that was kind of the tone of this of this entire generational cultural zeitgeist was this guy right 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 here and maybe throwing a bit in nirvana Mm. the only thing that every comic from my generation agrees on is he was better than us Mm. and uh, that's the only thing that they agree on and 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 they and i can't find anybody that has a big argument that he wasn't. Now, was he the the best that ever lived? No, but did he influence me more than anybody else, and you probably more than anybody else? Because you're certainly that way, also, right? Somebody, mm. somebody built that bridge, yes. And, and you and now you feel f- free to talk about anything. You know, none of your act is ever hack. You know, there were a lot of hacks, but I think Pigs yeah. freed people not to be a hack. You know, yeah, he uh, he cured people of that. He made it shameful. You know. I, I I just think that that's like like one reason why me and Aaron are um, are like wanting to go to this tonight is one it's a huge um, cultural thing like that's happening in um Dayton Ohio of you know all places and two um it's I just like it's 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 kind of I mean actually that that is my point I guess is is that it's such a snapshot of like where the culture is and to be able to go and experience and part and partake in that and you know um test everything hold on and hold on up to the good um that's i like i i'm i'm okay going into going into that space i understand that it isn't that it isn't for everyone but i would not inherently um say that you should not do it oh my goodness, Luke. What? You just answered a riddle in my head that has been with me since I was 11 years old. See? I, what a friendship. Pays off in dividends. This stock just split, baby. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're talking about how Hicks is the quintessential Gen Xer moody mentality, right? Like, yeah. Did So yeah. I, I go to the Hicks... Uh, Bill Hicks um, webpage on Wikipedia and I'm reading the little table of contents and it says Hicks and Tool you know the band Tool (laughs) yes we've talked about them before progressive metal band Tool invited Hicks to open a number of concerts in 1993 Lollapalooza appearances where Hicks once asked the audience to look for a contact lens he lost thousands of people complied (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is yeah. Can you guys help me look for a contact lens? Uh-huh. Members of Tool felt that they and Hicks were resonating similar concepts. Intending to raise awareness about Hicks' material and ideas, Tool dedicated their triple album, triple platinum album, Einema, to Hicks, which is the album that my brother had, the only album I know. Both the lenticular casing of Einema as well as the chorus, which makes reference to a sketch from his Arizona Bay album in which he contemplates the idea of Los Angeles falling to the Pacific Ocean. And that's the song I sang on an episode of of this show 
Some say a comet will fall from the sky. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's crazy because uh, here's the riddle. My brother, at one point, was defending his drug abuse, right? So this is when we were in high school, and I was scared of all things, not what my parents said is okay. And uh, he's talking about his drugs and all this stuff, and he pushes play, and there is a guy saying, See, I think drugs have done some good things for us. I really do. And if you don't believe drugs have done good things for us, do me a favor. Go home tonight, take all your albums, all your tapes, and all your CDs, and burn them. Because you know what? The musicians who made all that great music that's enhanced your lives throughout the years. Real fucking high on drugs. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure it was Hicks that Tool had taken the like a from a comedy sketch and just dropped it into their album. Holy Oh, that would have surprised me. That is Yeah. That is hysterical to me. Wow. And you want to talk about Gen X, I mean Tool, Grunge, Progressive Metal, like all of that. He used to open yeah. for for Tool. <laughs> all right, I'm done. Sam Kinison opened for Nirvana. And I don't think it went over very well. <laughs> Anyways, that's our little um, tangent on we're supposed to talk about the Matrix and, uh, and we're just talking about stand up. Yeah. Okay. But it, it is I don't know, it is very interesting. Like it's a it's a very um it's an art form that I love to see. Like when it's good, it's really, really good. And there's so many different ways to go about it too. That's 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 the thing. It's almost like podcasting where it is as nuanced as the amount of people that are able to do it and going and going. Not your not your eight episode losers. <laughs> hmm. So, anyways, uh, the Matrix, huh? So, what was it that drew? Why did? Why is the Matrix the thing that connects this stuff for you about well, being addicted th- to mediocrity? So, I want to be clear, uh, really quick. I had not listened to the last ten minutes or so of that episode of the Catching Stuff. Episode, yeah. I'm oh, sorry, of the catching stuff. Good, good gosh. Uh, <laughs> is it though? Um, the Catholic stuff episode where they actually reference the the Matrix. I hadn't heard that part, but I was it. It kind of it it um it had clicked in my brain because I w- I had just listened to a podcast from the Blank Check guys about about the Matrix, and I was like, huh, it's kind of interesting if you were to view th- the Matrix. And this concept that they were going after in addicted to like mediocrity as two responses to the anima technica vacua and how both are trying to process like what this is and how this and how this impacts us. And that's what I wanted um, to talk about. Okay, let's go. Lead me. Lead me, dear bird. All right. Okay, so for the kids, could you define the anima technica vac- vacua? Please? Well, it's a, essentially the the empty soul that being uh, belonging to a technopoly or a technocratic world leaves us, right? So the more we adapt and adopt the mentalities of our machines and the software around us, it, it actually leaves us more vacant, less human, less natural, less less receptive to grace, right? And yeah, over and over again, this vacuitous nature of the technical society that everything is being reduced to uh, over time, this leads to an obsession with mediocrity. 
and in the at least in the way that they were applying it on the show Catholic stuff you should know that we become addicted to the mass culture mass appeal mass 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 and things become it, well it becomes a drug yeah, yeah. and it, yeah that's what i mean and it starts to and and as a drug we don't understand we have a malaise when we think about giving it up we we kick back against it we it also drives us away from greatness, right? Because mediocrity, its main thing is like just do what's comfortable, not what's great, not what's heroic, not what's good, even. And so, um, yeah, the and, and it co- yeah, and consistently lowers our. Of medi- I'm sorry, Go it ahead. consistently lowers our standards of what is good and decent and even mediocre. Mediocre is always a gentle slide down. It's not evil. It's mediocre. It's in between the two areas. Yeah, And it dulls. I think I w- the one thing I would add to the, like a good definition of the anima technique of a vac, vac, a vac, vacu is that like one of the, one of like the main, like it's just like the emptiness of this idea that action is what matters. So action for action's sake. Like, yeah. Taking action is good, but when, when is it rooted in anything? It's just like all that matters is that you do stuff. And, you know, I think I, I believe it's on Balthazar who, like, you know, has the line where he's trying to describe um, what this is. It's where, um, oh, I have it right here. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. The, um, the result of the Anima Technica, this is, this is uh, from the great um, thing that you bought me with the one when we first um, talked about it. The result is a world without women, without children, without with with without reverence for love in poverty. A like a like a world in which art art itself is forced to wear the mask of technique. Okay, so there was so they were talking about this one author and his response to like how do you fight this culture is through silence. That is one of the main ways, and how hard that actually is now. Because, and this has been this has actually been talked about even even in mainstream culture for years. Um, is that the show Friends is popular because it's like a microdose of of Friends. Like, I don't have real friends, but I'll like spend I'll spend two hours on watching this on a show, so I feel like I have actual friends, people that I share my life with every day, and um. When you when you look at the Matrix, it's this really interesting film because it does acknowledge that there's some mechanical a machine element to our world that we're somehow plugged into, and the idea behind it is that you unplug and become your true self. But then when you look at how they define what your what your true self is, it's really fascinating. Now to do this, we need to talk a little bit about the god awful. Uh, the horrible sequels. Do you, do you oh, remember those? I, I like them. You're such a loser. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they, Listen, I think they I make, am above all things, a sci-fi junkie. I know, but it just, it's like, uh, it's the, the first one is so, so good, but yeah. I like what they were going for in the last two. And I'm, I'm stealing a lot of this from, <laughs> Um, this is the part of the show where we steal stuff. I'm stealing a lot of this stuff from from the Blank Check podcast. But uh, do you remember in The Matrix Reloaded when they have the sex scene between Trinity and Neo? So one of the things that they pointed out was they don't look like men. Like it, it just it just almost looks like two bodies going at it. You don't know what's the sex of like of the other. 
and how uh-huh. intentional that was on the part of the Wachowski, the then Wachowski brothers, now Wachowski sisters, I guess, was to show it's just like that sex is meaningless. It's just about who it's about. Uh, it's about like whatever you want. And I thought that was so interesting because, if, again, if you view the like, I think the Matrix gets gets a ton of this stuff right, where it's just like we are in a sense hooked up to um this machine, this machine of our um, uh, like we are attached to like uh, uh, whether we like it or not, we're attached to this culture. We cannot escape that by being the by the very fact that we are born in into it. We that like we are raised here, that we exist here, worked hooked up to this machine, and there's no getting getting away from that that fact. Now you can like break off of it. I think I think you can, and I think it's very. Then that's where the whole like, like a lot of almost silence comes comes in, but. So then when it's very interesting, I think when you look at the matrix and they, they I think they're actually acknowledging that I'm um, a deeper tr- truth. It was just like where we talked about before with, you know, these comedians trying to get towards a bigger truth through their comedy. That's what I think the, the Wachowskis were doing here was they are they were are if you, I don't know how you want to put it, but they're trying to understand like, hey, like we're. Doesn't it feel like we're all a part of um, this machine? And isn't that like? And so then, like, what do we do? Their 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 whole answer is to just reject every part of anything and completely rely on like the self um, the self like determining who you are and what you want. It it is funny to me because in the science fiction world, there are articles that are written that said was Keanu Reeves wrong in unplugging, and th- th- people make a case that. Uh, what was his name? Was it Cipher? Who was the bad guy? Oh yeah, uh, the guy. Um, yes, so oh, Cipher, I think. Yeah, his idea of like plug me back in, give me a good life, and I will betray all of my friends. The idea, kind of at the core of the Matrix, not just that we're connected to this big machine, but like it is so easy to live a lie, to live an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's why yeah. it resonated because. There was this fundamental option in the hands of Morpheus, right? The red pill or the blue pill. You take one, you stay in, what was it? You stay in Neverland, you take the other one, and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes or, you know, whatever. You wake up, you tell yourself whatever you need in order to deal with life, and then you go back to the life as it is. And then you take this, and then you wake up to reality. And that goes back to... Plato's cave, right? Like most people live a life where they see shadows on a cave wall lit by a fire. Only the true enlightened see real things as they are in the real world by the sunlight. And when he tells the people in the cave to bring them liberation, what do they do? They kill him, right? Like that's what they did to Socrates. He told them the truth Mm -hmm. about reality and they murdered him for it. And they were going to do the same to Aristotle. He said, I won't let you sin against philosophy twice so he left athens um and and started his lyceum somewhere else the so there's this notion of like enlightenment waking up seeing the truth but it's not just seeing the truth this is what i loved about the matrix is it's seeing the ugly truth because Mm -hmm. even though his life was yeah his life you, you had the option of steak dinners smoking a cigar being a corporate drone and going to that weirdo underground leather metal concert, 
Or, <laughs> you know, like these constant adult- theme in their stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Or <laughs> you wake up having never used your muscles. You're in this terrifying place where you get toilet flushed out of. Uh, and then your daily food is a snot slurry gruel with all the event- essential vitamins and nutrients. Um, it's horrible, but it's real. So then the question becomes, would you accept horribleness if it was true? Or even comfortableness, pleasantness, even hedonism, however you want to define it, but it's a lie. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that is one of the things that the Matrix one of the ways you can interpret it. And one man says, I've seen the truth and I can't do it anymore. I have to go back even at the cost of my friendships. And the other was Neo reveals he will accept the truth and even lay down his life for his friends. But then this is where it gets really interesting is think about where it goes in the next two films. Yes. Where we learn that, that he's the sixth one to be the one and that they've had to start over on the 20th century again and again and again and always comes to the same thing like basically that's where humanity starts starts um, to fall apart which i also think is true and um it uh i think when you take this idea of like the whole thing about the matrix that i think is very interesting is when they are detached they still can't break away from the machine. So what mm-hmm. does what does Morpheus just become obsessed with trying to find uh, find the one? You have like Trinity who's who was told she's going to fall from like they're told this from a machine. Yeah, um, yeah. The, oracle the oracle that yeah. uh, she, she's going to fall in love um, with the one. So there's still this thing where they are. They can't help but see their whole world through the lens of the machine. Yeah. And even, like, where they want to go with it. And then to finally out. And this is where I think this is the point that they were – I think the Wachowskis were trying to make. But this is what I find – like, that all you have left is really is really um, whatever – you want to do and the result is hedonism they have they have the whole orgy in zion <laughs> they have what's gonna be there machines <laughs> i just think it of was MTVs. so weird yeah it really was yeah it was so weird and, but i think that's all i mean but and i saw that scene with it, my mom in the movie theater <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful but if you're still plugged, if you're still plugged into um, the machine, that's all that that's the only place you really have to go with it. Yeah, and that's why I think um, the silence thing was so interesting because one of the things um, they thought Father John kept harping on was um, this allows us to enter in, into reality, and when we're plugged into this stuff. Even when we think that we aren't, how easy is it to operate, to like think we're doing uh, doing the right thing, but not really understanding that we're still that we're still um, plugged into this, in, like into um, into um, this thing. Like this is why online um, churches don't ultimately work because you're still it still becomes this like microdose of this. Of like you know anything to make me feel good, and why getting obsessed with podcasts? This is this is why obsessive almost phantom happens. This is why all this stuff occurs because we don't know what else to do besides be hooked up to some machine. Yeah, 
And, and even even my kids to... are like that. Even my kids are like that. Like the moment you take away the iPad, they flip their dang minds. And yeah. they really get 15 mm-hmm. minutes with it, you know? And they lose themselves. Dad, I'm bored. Can I have the iPad? I'm like, we we literally just got back from a pool party. Or we literally just got back from uh obstacle warrior kids where you were are exhausted from climbing and jumping and doing all this stuff and they're like, yeah, but now I'm bored. Like I don't, I don't yeah. know how to how to be entertained. I don't know how to be unless I'm being entertained by a screen. Well, and just you know, and how like think about and just kind of uh, within my own life how, um, like y- you know, we both get so us. We you know, we both get um, we both get stressed out over not having quote unquote real jobs at times when we were in ministry. And is isn't that just a result of being plugged into the into into uh, you know the machine still? Because if I come without a thing, I uh, I am a I come with all I need, right? Yeah. So then, where does this obsession with money come from? Is it just a result? Now, I mean, there are some general. I mean, there there are some unreal things about. Hey, this is a salary that I have to get paid in order to pay my bills, exist, exist, and live. Sure, at like absolutely, but when we start getting beyond that, when it becomes, but I can't take this vacation, or I can't do this, or I can't do that, is that really, is that the result of me being plugged into 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 um, this machine and not entering into real silence and real receptivity and understanding the world for how it actually is? Interesting. Yeah, I will say, like when I was teaching my kids about money, money is difficult to make. So when you earn it, protect it, right? Respect it, but don't be dominated by it. And you look at that from like the fire movement perspective. The idea is cut your life down so you you live inexpensively. You have the essentials, and then that way you can retire from the corporate drone work and do the things you love or be financially independent as a way of unplug. So taking your analogy with the matrix, right? Fire is a way to unplug from the workaday world and in order to pursue, you know, the life that you want. And the way you do that is by ditching a consumer culture and embracing radical frugality. On top of that, you, you still have to be connected to the machine in terms of hyper investing in the stock market. You know, there is mm-hmm. no, Right, so you're still you still are connected. It's still a race with wealth, but it's a race with wealth through what I think is a more virtuous path of rejecting consumerism whole cloth. But even then, when you listen to them, they're like, "No, do whatever you want to do that brings you joy, and then just cut mm-hmm. down all the rest." And mm-hmm. there still becomes written within it, you know. And, and I didn't even realize this until I was listening to Andy Stanley, the Protestant pastor down in in Atlanta, where he said. You know, um, people talk about being financially responsible when you save, you have a spending and saving. And he said, but in spending and saving, it's still all about you. Either I spend now or I spend later with more money because I saved it. Spenders and savers are still focused on themselves. It's only the givers who take the money away from themselves to others. And I thought that was interesting because, I mean, it is important and it is a clever way to ask for money. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but it is it, it is interesting game because, game. <laughs> because at the heart of financial independence is this notion of 
cutting down what I thought I need to what I really need and then saving the difference and investing the difference so that I can pay for emergencies. But then you start cutting back on those things and you realize, well, less emergencies happen when I choose to drive a paid-off car. I don't always have a car payment, so that car payment goes to savings and investing. And then all of a sudden, like, you realize you have your army of dollars doing work for you. But you can still be just as selfish, right? You're you're yeah. recontextualizing yep. your selfishness in distance I want. You know, one of the, the things about work is our need for money, we don't need money. We need the thing that money brings, right? We need food. We need clothing. We need shelter. We need to, you know, whatever. Um, but there still ends up being this, this drive for this thing in and of itself. And it brings along with this, this other stuff. Money is interesting because it's not really like I want that thing. It's I want the thing that that thing gets me. Options, choice. But when we live in a culture where the machine is surrounded by the maximization of options, then the necessary obsession with money comes because money gives you options. Work, mm-hmm. if I'm independent, I'm not forced to work, right, if I'm financially independent. And I, that, what, that's the, like, part that scares me about the FIRE movement is when I no longer am forced to work in order to survive, what do I do with this thing called life? Well, you pursue this and you pursue that. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not required to be with you. Like work forces me to be in social situations where, you know, mm-hmm. I'm required to be with people. It forces me to, to, to develop skills in my life. And if I were, let's just say like a rich uncle dies and I'm financially independent. Yeah, I might, I might be frugal and live my life to the bone. But like I'm no longer required to work towards a common end with other people. The, the lack of independence forces me into net beneficial things. And I think that, that that's one of the aspects. And I know that once you go financially independent, you can do the things you love and blah, blah, blah. But there comes this part that I think is lost of discipline and coordination and collaboration that can, can easily go away like it does with people who are retired. They quit their jobs. They retire. They have the money. They indulge in vacations. Then they get bored with vacations. They're like, now what do I do? Well, the, hopefully the answer is you live a contemplative life and you help raise your grandchildren. But for many of these people, that option no longer exists because they didn't have kids themselves. And now they're financially independent. They're wealthy. They don't have kids, so therefore they don't have grandkids. And they're just in, indulging, yeah, indulging, I don't think the indulging. Whole, the whole purpose should all – well, okay, I don't, don't want to go down too much down – the like rabbit hole, but like there's you know, so John Paul II talks about the dignity of work, right? Yeah, and how it can give like purpose. And there's there's almost something inherently good about enjoying the fruit of your labor. Yeah, there's a there's a real um goodness to that and on what that does to a person's life. Now, there are other things that you can do when the person isn't able um, to do that, and uh, you know, all these things, but I, I, I think like you bring up a um. Those those were really good points, and I think that there's one thing they kept talking about in the Addicted to Meocrity podcast was the whole point of all this, of really entering into silence, and they, they, had, they, had, they had all these great points that we don't have time to um, rehash here, but ultimately it's to, to become a, a gift for others, right? And so it's you're right. It's so easy to – going back to the Matrix then – when he gets pulled out of like out of the machine, he's basically plugged into another one. 
to the point where we find out in the sequels that like his whole point was to become unplugged, quote unquote, just to be plugged in to this other thing. And I mean, to this other um, yeah. to, that like he was still even though he wasn't hooked up to these machines, he was still uh, he was still he, he he was like fulfilling a thing that they had for him. So he was in essence, he was still a part of it. Yeah. And um, I think what the so which is what the Matrix lacked is that so like God, he reveals and heals. Right. They had they really had the revelation part, but there was but, you know, there was no healing going on at all. And so when he's when when he's un when he's unplugged, he is just um, left with almost was like almost um, this uh, damaged nerve. And what and if you have no opportunities to actually experience God's healing that he, that he wants for you, what other choice do you have but hedonism? To like turn into yourself and just yeah. try to do whatever you can to feel good, and I think that's what the Matrix ultimately like like what like what it lacks and why it's really a horrifying thing to really have to contemplate because it's it's almost a world where a healing doesn't exist. Yeah, and when we and when we unplug and we and we enter in to silence or we enter into real holy things like marriage or um you know holy orders any of any of that stuff it brings your wounds to your face and it says you've got to deal with this yeah god's going to want want to heal you and if you don't enter into that um silence you're you're never and that can often take the form of you know going to counseling other than i mean there are things that you're going to have to do to you know find that healing um, but if you don't enter into silence, you aren't ever going to confront the fact that you, that you need it. The the interesting twist of the Matrix sequels it changes the tone of the like the trilogy changed the tone of the original movie, right? Yeah. Like it it ended up kind of retconning the original movie, and I don't know if they conceived of it as this three part or now four part thing. But the Wachowskis, like, they talked about, like, they studied a lot of philosophy and theology, which is why when Cypher betrays, it's almost like a Last Supper-styled scene. You know, they have these different elements that they intentionally incorporated, um, you know, a mythic universe into it, right? And these values and, and the you know, Neo as the chosen one. And if it stood on its own, it would have been fine. But then what they end up doing, so they're kind of exploring also the notion of free will. Because how the first movie ends is Neo comes to the, he exits the cave while inside the machine, right? He has the full realization, wait, I am the one. I'm the one whose very mind can alter the machine code, right? Like, I can alter the parameters of this machine universe. And so what does he do? He achieves, you know, first he resurrects, then he goes up to Agent Smith, who is his, you know, Satan figure, and he jumps inside him, right? You remember that? And he explodes mm-hmm. him. It was, and, uh, it, was the, it was the worst part of the, of the animation, right? Like him diving in. But um, so he goes inside him, and then he's like, what are you doing? What are you? And he blows him up from the inside out. Now, in the follow-up sequels, and it, it ends with him saying to the Matrix itself, like, I'm going to liberate all of them. And then he flies away with Rage Against the Machine music playing. 
that ends on a note of liberation, right? I've achieved enlightenment. Now I'm going to be, that's the hero's quest, right? I'm going to bring, after going through the ordeal, I now am the victor and I'm bringing boons to my people, right? I'm going to liberate them. But then two and three are weird because it ends with the whole idea as Neo is trying to wake people up and then start up life in Zion. It ends with a truce, right? The whole ending of it, when Neo gives his life in that quasi-Christological way in the real world, Mm -hmm. the whole narrative is... I die, and the all the humans are given a a direct choice whether or not to remain in the machine or to be free, and that's the resolution. So the interesting thing, the kind of plot twists are you find out vis-a-vis concordantly, ergo, when he's in the uh, the thing with the <laughs> that's architect. Such a wonderful, crazy thing. I know. It's, I remember when that happened, I was like, what the fuck? Like, I was just so like, I, I mean, I don't know how else to explain how I felt besides that. So yeah, and Will sorry Ferrell's. Sorry for cursing everyone. Yeah, and Will Ferrell's MTV thing was perfect at making fun of it. But the the whole idea, the things that were different with Neo that weren't, with the other chosen ones was Neo fell in love with an individual human person that caused him to choose to do the exact opposite. They wanted Neo to die, to give her up for the sake of the system. So he had a fundamental choice and that rebooted the matrix or, or his option was to love her and to let the matrix, you know, basically fall apart and everyone die. And he chose basically to choose her and in choosing her, he was going to basically launch an all-out war and blah, 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 instead of reboot the Matrix, right? Because you have to allow for freedom. Without freedom, humans won't accept the programming. So what they did was they gave absolute, not absolute, but they gave a fundamental option to one person, the chosen one, and he resets everything. But So now he has his love affair with this woman, Trinity, but also it's with Agent Smith, Agent Smith is the new wild card because when the one entered him, his code got written onto Agent Smith's code, and now Agent Smith was cursed with freedom, right? He no longer fell into the parameters. He has done this all six times before, but now there's a new thing. This chosen one jumped into him and obliterated him, but in obliterating him, he rewrote the code, and now he can, he can number one, reproduce himself, and number two, he can step into the real world by taking mm-hmm. over a real person's mind. So you start to see, like, okay, that was a cool twist. That's why I like the sequels. But then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, oh, so when he talks with the Oracle and the little girl and the architect, the idea is, yeah, here's your sense of liberation, you can get plugged in or you can move into Zion and we won't kill you either way. You're like, what? So that's the culminating like uh, thing of the and, and it is interesting to me how Gnostic it is. Like it's all about acquiring the secret knowledge. But the funny thing is it follows the pattern of Gnosticism and what you just pointed out. Gnostic heresies, all their different Gnostic groups were totally different. One group said the body is evil, therefore don't feed it. They would literally, the leaders would starve that fast themselves to death. Because it's like, no, this belong- the body belongs to the evil god. 
But the other Gnostics were like, well, the body is totally evil. It has nothing to do with, like, morality, man. So they would have orgies, right? And that was their, <laughs> that was their thing. They were like, That's, everybody, they, er, ergo, orgies. <laughs> yeah. Listen, here's the consequence of our believing in an all-good but purely spiritual being. Uh, the body is cool. Uh, have orgies. It's evil. It means nothing, right? And so that's what they did. In Zion, they had orgies, right? I remember I was watching that scene with my mom in the movie theater because we loved The Matrix. And I go, oh, look, they're in. my mom goes, oh, they're in Zion. Here's that religious imagery again. And then they start having the orgy, and I go, oh, they must be Pentecostals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, you know, it, it is funny. And that's how Gnosticism played itself out. You have secret knowledge. It awakens you to the real world, right? It's like Scientology, right? Like, here's the real <laughs> truth underneath the truth underneath the truth it's the reason why so many people are obsessed with certain types of global conspiracy theories and the illuminati right these are people who actually pull the strings you know and and the reality is the kingdom of god is within you right it's not here it's not there it's not going down into hell to pull it up or going up into heaven to pull christ down the kingdom of god is within you faith is on your lips believe in the son of god in whose image you were made you know like you can't, but here's the thing that I think a lot of us miss, especially with yep. w- with in ministry, and this is what um, Balthasar hammers at, is you can't make contact in the Anima Technique on the back. You can't evangelize in, in that sphere. It is He doesn't think it's possible, I think, if I'm reading him, him correctly, and that they bring up this great line on um, the Catholic Stuff episode where they talk. I think it's uh, – I don't remember this guy's name. The quote from says, Michael O'Brien. Um, n- 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 no, it is um, – Oh. Oh, it's some theologian. I've heard his name before where he says it's basically to be – now to be either uh, – either if you, if like, basically if you um, have a modern man who says he or she wants to be a – Christian, they either have to be a mystic or they won't be at all. Oh yeah, yeah. That, that so was you awesome. have to. It's 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 not as easy. Like I I get I get what you're saying about like acknowledge of the Son of God and all that stuff, but it's not that simple because I think it's a real Protestant um, way to view it, which is why Protestantism now is just like crumbling because it doesn't have the cultural weight anymore. It's not as simple as changing your belief system. <coughs> It takes a real, um, like it takes work, and you have to really try. And you have to really like be open and be silent, and it like you have to like you have to like you've got to try. I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, in, in like a weird way, you have to. I don't know if what I'm saying is uh, is only making sense or not, but well, so like what you, I was saying you, was the idea of retreating into silence. Right, so you take Christ's quote: "The kingdom of heaven is within you." Right, it's within man. It's within all. Oh, men, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. But then the idea, and they, they, I'm pretty sure they talk about it in the podcast where they quote Paul, like the word of faith is within you. Don't say, you know, do I descend into the dead to pull Christ up, or do I ascend into heaven to bring Christ back down? But it's within you. It's on your lips and in your heart. And the idea of Cardinal Seurat. In his book, The Power of Silence, he's like, this is why we need silence and our modern age cannot permit it. Because once you draw yourself into solitude, that's where God works. 
and you don't want to do this. You'd rather have noise yeah. because it's, yeah, it's, it's comfortable. Like it's, like, sorry, and I, I wasn't. I'm trying to say that that um you were wrong. I just feel like so often people reduce it to just believe in what Jesus. You believe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so what I'm saying is simple, right? What I'm saying is the idea of uh, so. There's a quote from Michael O'Brien, the guy that they were quoting, that kind of started the the um the episode was solitude is the natural dwelling place of truth it is there you will wrestle it is there you'll be tested by fire and by darkness and cardinal Sarah talks about like no prophet in the old testament ever encountered god except by withdrawing into solitude right and jesus in, in mark's gospel over in all the gospels but especially in mark's gospel he constantly goes to, Scripture will say, like, a lonely place. And when I teach people how to pray, I'm like, it's one thing to pray the communal prayers of the church in the liturgy, another thing, the traditional prayers. I said, but there's a reason why Jesus said, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. It's the idea of, like, the secret place within myself. You know, St. Teresa of Avila and mm-hmm. Teresa Lazou talks about retreating into the cell of your heart, like, and and that's why the anima technica vacua is so difficult. It's because when you're plugged in, you're always on, like your internet connection, like Wi-Fi. It's pernicious. It's ever present. It's it's like a mock. It's a technological mockery of the omnipresence of God. Like it is always there, always calling. And like Matt Frad said one time, and I, and I did an episode with him one day about like the difference between a book and a phone. And he said that even though the person who was reading a phone was uh, using the phone, was reading a book on her phone. He said, the difference is the book, I'm acting on the book, whereas with the phone, the phone is acting on you. And that's the difference with the anima technica vacua is it's consistently, perniciously acting upon you, right? It's constantly calling out to you. And I, like, I jokingly said, I'm going to, I have a notes field in my, um, uh, in my phone to put tweets that I wanted to post, you know, and like that little joke. But the idea is like this last week, there have been times where I'm like, where do I post these pictures so other people can see them? And so I sent that photo of you, of uh, me and Cecilia to you. And you're like, oh, that's sweet. And I sent a couple photos with my gang sign uh, staff photo or whatever. Um, but the idea is my first freaking inclination is other people need to see this and tell me I'm funny. You know, like, and that is part of the vacuitous nature of vacu- vacuitous, whatever, of of the technological the em- society. Empty nature. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's so it's, empty. It's yeah. like, someone tell me I, you like this. Tell me you like this. And then silence is like, like, when you push all that away, silence is like, all right, who am I like? Not do you like this thing I did, but who am I? Who am I? And that's when I really like the um, the fact that in the Matrix they talk about how when they were when they were to reboot it every time they start at the beginning of the twentieth of the century, because when you look at Balthasar when he's actually um, writing about the Anima Technica um, Amavaco, I believe it's in his last book. Um, is it epilogue? I forget what it's called. Oh, Sorry. the epilogue. I really yeah, should have written this yeah. stuff down. Yeah, and, and I think I mean he dies in what like eighty eight, eighty nine, eighty seven. Sometime in like, sometime in um, you know the late eighties. I think he's writing it and he's reflecting on the past hundred years or so of you know of like it's it's and I think that the Matrix kind of hits on that of like this is why I think it's so interesting as as if you were to view them as both being a response to the anima tech like 
technique on Mavaco is that like this is a thing that has been you know in motion since before my great grandparents were born. Like this didn't just happen in 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 the last twenty years. I mean, this has been you know this is this has been coming. This is the result of, of Descartes and the Enlightenment and modernism, and um, you know the like. Um, like deism of the of the eighteenth century, or the, even the atheism of the eighteenth um, century, and the scientific revolution and the industrial um, revolution, and all of this stuff, like it leads to this emptiness, and we can't. And everything that we are undoing isn't. It is the anima technica um, vacuo, but it's ultimately our response to it. Because now, instead of having to try to find other ways to stay in touch with um, people, it can be so instantaneous. It's like it's getting. It's like um, it's almost like the the, um, the drug has to get more and more powerful. So it starts with telegrams, and then it goes to um, of the phone, and then it goes to the you know like faster letters. Then it goes to the internet, and then it goes to you know um, or um, super um, computers. Then the internet. Then you have the home computer, and then you have the home internet, and then you have smartphones, and then you have all this other yeah. like. It's not like this is not a new problem. This has been around. We've been dealing with this for a good long while. Yeah. The radical individualization of the internet is one of the most powerful tools the world has ever known. Right? The world has ever known. And we yeah. don't know if it's a net benefit yet. Like, there's a lot of benefits. We all know this. But there's also so many dark downsides. That I, I really do. This is one of the things why I love things like carnivore or primal or ancestral health stuff and CrossFit. And even though I don't do CrossFit, I love the ideas behind it because it's like, how can I get? How can I come as close to nature as possible? And you realize that living in this this anima technica vacua like approach to things is how can I dominate nature as much as possible? And you realize I'm dwelling in unreality and I can't be happy. It's untrue, yeah, it is and your, I can't be happy. Yep. I love yep, this line, Mike, Father Michael O'Brien. Now I'm reading these quotes, and there's this sick quote that says from the book Father Elijah and Apocalypse. Tell me, Anna, if man is capable of projecting his belief onto the cosmos, isn't it possible by the same token that he can project his unbelief onto the cosmos? And I'm like, wow, that actually, that is a sick quote. That's awesome. Hmm. Man. And it, like this is why I think so many different ministries, like we see this in Glenmary, their whole goal was to convert people in the, the, the rural. So back back when they first when they first began back back in nineteen thirties, they wanted to try to convert people in the south. Sorry, in like in these like rural areas for two main reasons. One was there wasn't anyone that was there weren't any um, Catholics there, and two they felt like they hadn't been corrupted by. Of the cities yet, specifically birth control and communism. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And so there was this idea. I was like, "What birth control and communism? What are you talking about?" <laughs> like he was obsessed with communism, the founder. And um, and but there is, I think, there's something to that in, in the sense of, well, anyways, they go so they go to these rural areas, and their whole goal was at first to convert people to Catholicism, and they they found it to be exceedingly difficult. And you would have and you would have thought in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s that should be easy, right? Because people are like open to God, but it it wasn't. 
And what do you see continuing to happen right now as we see through all these different um, all these different um, ministries, anywhere you go, any parish, any like any like, like any like apostolate, anything, they will tell you conversion is actually really hard and very rare is the wrong word, but it's not in the numbers that you think it would be. And that yeah. has been going on for decades. For decades. And I just think even in places where you think it would be the easiest thing in the world, such as the rural South in the 1930s, it wasn't. Right. It wasn't. I think part of it is because of the Anima Technica Omavaco and our idea of God and the power of the you know individual. Because so it's not about wanting to enter into like a bigger truth or anything. It's about my. It's it's really more of just it's it's really not even about um not even about like belief as it is identity. So if I convert and, you know, I'm a Baptist, who am I then? My whole world is this little thing here. If we do not play in the dangerous surf, we will drown in puddles. If we do not play in the dangerous surf, we will drown in puddles. That is an excellent statement about addicted to mediocrity. Drowning in puddles. Yeah. Oh, man. Who's that from? Michael O'Brien. These are his quotes. Look at that guy. Man projects his wounds upon the world, my friend. He judges everything, and in the judging, he reveals himself. <laughs> I love, I freaking love, I'm going to go out and get these books. I've ignored these books for so long because he used to write these end times novels that were like more contemplative, right? Father Elijah and so didn't he write the stuff that like I think like a lot of it was something that I think I think my mom was I'm reading almost some of his stuff because it was while I was in college and they had some line about oh well, nothing spread so fast in in Steubenville like like um like um gossip and I was like ha that's true <laughs> that is that is hilarious yeah the uh, so he started writing his novels became popular that and herpes. <laughs> his novels became popular when the Left Behind series was kind of like really ramping up. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people equated the two. I definitely did. I'm like, oh, I don't need another Catholic. I don't need a Catholic version of Left Behind. Yes, a version of that. But it turns out they were not like that. So Turns out we were the (laughs) douchebags. Oh, look at this quote. Real love is a long apprenticeship. How awesome is that? A long apprenticeship. Oh, long apprenticeship. That's really, oh, man. That is devastatingly true. 